Hello and welcome to the Modern Fairy Sightings podcast, where we listen to people's fairy encounters. But take heed, we're not talking about winged tinkerbells here. These are real fairies, real encounters that took people like you and I by surprise. Stay a while and hear their stories. My name is Joe Hickey Hall, and I'm a folklore researcher. Dear listener, summer solstice blessings to you. I hope you're well. I was lucky enough to join a public ceremony at Stanton Drew this week. It's always worth the 3am alarm to join with my friends and make new ones at this sacred place and celebrate the longest day of the year. My friend Adrian Rook, a druid of the Dubuni Grove, always produces a fantastic ceremony at this beautiful standing stone circle which is the second largest stone circle after Avebury. These ceremonies are always humorous and touching and he is now well known for producing uh, a dance at the end in which we dance in a spiral and sing and that's come to be a well-loved aspect of these events. It's always a great great fun. I audio record these public ceremonies and I'll place the link on the show notes for anyone who'd like to get a sense of the event. It does feel like a time of fullness and fruition and suddenly the YouTube channel of the Modern Fairy Sightings podcast is teeming with activity. Some of you listening to this episode may have just found us through that YouTube channel so welcome. And a huge thanks, as always, to my incredible supporters on Patreon, The Curious Crew. I am hoping at some point to be able to step fully into creating the podcast because this is what makes my heart sing. It's a strange feeling that I've never felt before, aside from parental love. Perhaps there are artists and creators out there who understand this feeling of utter compulsion to live through what you do. For me, this calling, as that's what it feels like, has been a new experience to navigate, sometimes overwhelming, particularly when you have life matters that you need to attend to. It's a bit like having a foot in each world sometimes. At some point in the future, when I reach 300 patrons, I will create weekly episodes and commit fully to working on this project full time. Without my supporters, there is absolutely no way that this project would still be going by now and I am immensely grateful for their loving support and company along the way. Special shout out here goes to Paul and V for their generous support at the Weird Folk tier. We're meeting in person for a walk and picnic this Sunday in the Cotswolds, which will have taken place by the time this episode goes out to the public. But for any patrons listening early, there's still time to jump in and you can contact me on Patreon or scarletofthefay at gmail.com if you would like to join us. This week we have our online community Zoom chat on Tuesday evening at eight o'clock. So I'm really looking forward to that. And I've just released an exclusive solstice path working as a seasonal gift for all my supporters. It is a very rich and bountiful time of year. And as I say, this seems to be reflected in the sudden influx of interest on YouTube. So if you've just found us and feel like joining a like-minded community, please head to Patreon and search for the Modern Fairy Sightings podcast, where you'll find lots of bonus material and other offerings. 
This episode is one which I've been looking forward to for some time. I chat with High Priestess and Bishop of the French Gnostic Church, Amanda Mariamne Radcliffe. As I mentioned during the chat, I first heard Amanda talk about her experience with the lady and her connection with the Cathars on Aeon Bite podcast with Miguel Connor. I found it incredibly moving. I later caught her interview on Anthony Peake's Consciousness Hour on YouTube, another favourite podcast of mine. I immediately felt a deep connection and resonance with Amanda's story. In our discussion, we explore her experiences with the divine, which include some face-to-face fairy sightings which took place in Rennes-Laban in Odd in the south of France. The bonus section exclusively released to patrons include the following an experience of what sounds like a tokoloshi and a discussion around the sorts of emotional states fairies appear to be attracted to. We also talk about how Amanda seems to be drawn to these power points in the landscape, Montsegur, Renlebain and now Glastonbury, and how a dream led her to Renlebain and to joining the Gnostic order in France. She talks about the Rose Line in France also, where she lived, and the two waters in Rennes-le-Bain which meet there, and may possibly form a portal, and the paranormal experiences she had there as a result of that. We discuss how it made sense to her in terms of life transitions, so if you are interested in hearing those sections, please join us at Patreon. I'd like to thank Amanda for sharing these experiences so openly, and allowing a deep discussion to take place. I begin by asking her how she became a bishop in the French Gnostic Church, the story of the Cathars and her extraordinary life journey so far, which has at times been directed by dream insights. Amanda's encounter with the lady is very interesting. She relates it to having prayed that day in the church nearby, which was originally built on a sacred spring. As is often the case, churches are sometimes built on previously known sites of sacred significance. What's also fascinating is that many white lady experiences relate to waterways of some sort, as do other types of white lady apparitions such as BVMs, that's Blessed Virgin Mary visions, also known as Marian visions. These are recognised supernatural visions that experiences also relate to their religious faiths. There is a great body of white lady folklore particularly in England, and some of these relate to waterways such as bridges, but more often they are seen as ghosts of previous residents of the house or local area. These are generally attributed to women who've been murdered in that location, sadly, or they sometimes function as banshees by prophesying a death. Some reported fairy encounters also describe figures in white, although these are often of a small size. But the following case describes a full-size white lady, and this is from the Fairy Census 2014-2017. As I've mentioned previously, this is an ongoing survey by Simon Young of the Fairy Investigation Society. I'm going to put the link to this on the show notes because it's ongoing and he would really like anybody to provide their account of any fairy sightings to that ongoing census. This particular one is number 217 from the 2014 to 2017 census. It took place in Arkansas in the US. It was a female between the ages of 11 to 20 years and it took place in the 1990s. My younger sister and I were playing in the woods behind our grandparents' house with our family dog. 
Our grandparents' property was fairly large, so we liked to go exploring. On the back side of the property was a hilly area with a good-sized creek, note the waterways, running along the low areas. I had always enjoyed taking long walks there. That day, my sister, who was around six years old at the time, ran ahead of me and then off to the right, over the top of the hill and down to the creek. The dog stayed with me. As I went to follow my sister, the dog became very still and started leaning against me with his hackles raised, though he didn't bark or growl. He was focusing intently on something off to our left. It wasn't my sister because she'd gone off to our right. When I looked up to see what had the dog so worked up, I saw a woman. She was wearing a long white dress and was walking towards us, but there was no sound of crunching leaves or anything. It was completely silent and still. The birds and wind didn't even make a sound. She was beautiful and seemed to glow a little, like she was a little brighter than everything else around her. She looked at me and smiled and waved. I was feeling kind of shocked and just stood there staring back at her. My dog made some kind of noise and pushed against me some more and I looked down at him. When I looked up again, the woman was gone. My sister hadn't seen anything. So that's very interesting. And again, in there, we get this motif of fairy encounters where everything goes silent, the birds go silent. And here, as I, as I mentioned, we have a connection with water. And it's a fascinating subject matter altogether that merits further research. And as this episode is already lengthy, I will be returning to this subject this August. I'm going to be creating a bonus episode focusing on the lady and also white lady folklore, BVMs and white fairy encounters. If you have experienced something yourself or something similar to Amanda or have a white lady experience to report, then please do get in touch at scarletofthefay at gmail.com or through my website at scarletofthefay.com with two T's, scarlet with two T's. As we are learning, this earth we live in is much more mysterious than we in modern Western society are taught. And yet, judging by the amount of encounters that keep being reported, experiencing the divine, and if there is a difference, beings from the the other world, is a well-established and fairly regularly occurring human experience, and has likely been so since the beginning of time. I believe it's no coincidence that we're discovering this very truth at this time in the world's transition. We all feel it. There's no denying it unless you have made a very concerted effort to keep your head firmly in the sand over the last seven years or so. Something is happening. And my feeling is that it is safe to open to this as long as it feels right to do so for each individual. We take these steps together into the unknown perhaps rediscovering truths about ourselves and the mysterious workings of this world that our ancestors knew, but our society has temporarily forgotten. But deep in our hearts, we always remain curious.
welcome everybody to the Modern Fairy Sightings podcast and I'm delighted to introduce my guest this time, Amanda Mariamne Radcliffe, High Priestess and Bishop in the French Gnostic Church. Welcome Amanda, it's really great to have you here. Thank you, it's great to be here. Thanks, so um, I've been following your work for a while um, we've, we've had a few chats, haven't we? But um, I think the first time I heard you speak about your your life and your experiences was listening to the Aeon Bites episode. It was um, one of the Cathars episodes. I know you've done a few. I think it was uh, middle of 20, uh, 2021. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I really love, I really love all, um, all his interviews. But I was driving along and um, and I got so intrigued by, you know, what, what you were saying resonated with me so much that I, I felt it in my body. I, I ended up kind of taking a wrong turn <laughs> <laughs> on the way home this night listening to this conversation because I was just so, you know, blown away by what you were saying and then I happened to see you again on Anthony Peake's Consciousness Hour which is a brilliant podcast for anybody that hasn't hasn't um, watched that before both both great uh, podcasts Aeon Byte and Anthony Peake's Consciousness Hour and again you know I think that time you spoke a little bit more about your experiences mm-hmm. and um, so I thought I really must get in touch and it's been nice you know, speaking in the meantime and sort of got to know each other a little bit more. Um, yeah. So I'm delighted to, to finally, you know, have you here. Um, and I just, I'm very interested in, first of all, perhaps you could describe to, to viewers and listeners about your life. Because, I mean, you've led such an interesting life so far and what's led you to uh, become a high priestess and bishop. Yeah, it's a it's a long story. <laughs> um, like you, I've had a lot of experiences since I was a child. And my mom and dad both were psychic. And my dad would take me to spiritualist groups when I was quite young. Um, and so I was always kind of immersed in that way of life. And growing up in a family with um, deep connections and roots in Wales and Ireland, like I think I said, and also the Sami in in Scandinavia, um, we had these traditions already in the family um, to a certain extent. Like um, we were never allowed to wear the colour green when we were children because our grandmother said it would signal that we belonged to the fairies and the fairies would come and take us. And we often were were leaving food on the side of the plate, for example. My dad still does it to this day, and so do I. (laughs) Um, And we kind of were encouraged to pay attention to the fact that, you know, there are invisible beings, and if you respect them, they'll respect you. But if not, they they can be mean and play tricks on you, as you know. Um, these old traditions were very much a part of the family. And I never really thought that much of it, you know, because I started seeing things when I was six. So it was quite early. And it was never um, it was never over, overtly encouraged, even though we had those traditions. It was just very much a part of our everyday life. 
but it was never discouraged either. And so I think it was just naturally there from the very beginning. And it is, um, you know, this when when we look, it's about six generations that we know of, including our children now, um, who who all had these abilities. Um, and none of my sisters can hide anything from their children because they know everything that's coming. You know, <laughs> um, my ne- my nephew quite recently they were going to. Um, take him to Disney World um, for a birthday surprise and he knew all about it even though they planned it outside the house because they made sure no one would hear anything but he started talking about I'm going to Disney World and he was about five um, so it's it's been in the family and it's been part of the kind of family environment but even so it was one of those things which I don't know about you, how you felt like growing up with having these kind of experiences. But for, for me, I've wanted very much for it not to be a part of my life. I wanted very much to have a normal life. And so I was always interested in, in finding out more about where these things came from, why they happen in certain families. Um, you know, I wanted to know the kind of science and the logic behind it. Mm. So after a few years of almost wanting to pretend it wasn't real and never being able to because you know when you're psychic you just know things and you can't unknow them um I decided to study um transpersonal consciousness studies um and that was the beginning really of a lot of how this got started because around that time I was having um, a lot of dreams Um, and these dreams led me directly to going to France in 2013 and they led me to contact a couple of people who were involved in these orders that I became involved with in France but I met them through dreams Um, and it was because I was given the information about these people by dreams that they took me seriously um when I contacted them yeah the flip side of what what we're used to in terms of what's what's normal they understand okay this person is actually one of us that they are real yeah yeah um and these dreams were several years apart so the first one was in 2009 and then the second one was in 2013 and the one in 2009 led me to a particular man and to his work. But I decided at that time that I didn't want to make contact with him because I wanted to resist and I wanted to continue to believe that I could have a normal life doing an ordinary job and ordinary things. I think I spoke to you about this. Yeah. Um, but then in 2013, as is often the case with these things, the other world asserted itself and everything that was in my life at that time just dissipated. And I ended up going back home and moving in with my parents for a short time um, while I reassessed what to do next. And it was during that period that I had another dream, which led me to a woman called Iona Miller. And this was it wasn't even really a dream it was more like a manifestation it was more like a visitation in honesty um 
I'd been ill and the doctors couldn't find anything wrong. And so one night I was in bed and this light appeared in the bedroom. And when I think back to it now, I, I recognize that this is the beginning of the white lady appearing, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I think it's all connected. In this instance, she, well, this light appeared and it was, um, I was awake and well, actually I was sleeping and then I, then I awoke and this light was there at the bottom of the bed and it was huge and extremely bright and unearthly in its coloration and its intensity. And then I heard a voice and the voice said, um, allow the radiant, healing, coherent light to enter your body and you shall be healed. And so I did. I mean, I was half asleep, but I was definitely awake, if you know what I mean. I was yeah. There was no way this was just a dream. Conscious. I, yeah, I remember having the thought of, can I trust this? Is this okay? You know, um, but then it felt, it felt okay. And so I allowed it to come in. And then I fell asleep. And then in the morning, I was fine. It was exactly as it said, whatever the it was. And then I went to Google and I looked up the phrase radiant, coherent, healing light because I had never, never heard this before. And it took me directly to a video made by Iona Miller called Photonic Human. And I watched that video and it was pretty much exactly what I had seen in my vision or visitation, whatever it was. And she was, I say was because she passed away last year, unfortunately, but she was um, she was an artist, but she was also a consciousness researcher. She worked with a lot of the early consciousness people like Stanley Krippner and Hal Putoff and people like that. She was part of the um, Stanford uh, Research Institute. And I can't remember the other one's name, but anyway, she she was deeply into quantum physics and how that interacts with consciousness, but she was also connected to the man um, who I discovered from the first dream. Okay. <laughs> she said yeah. to me, have you ever discovered any, when I contacted her, I, I apologized. And I said, I know this is going to sound crazy, but this is how I found you. And I explained. Mm and she said okay have you ever found anyone else by means of a dream or a vision or a visitation like this mm. and i said well one person um <clears throat> and i named him and she said well not only do i know him but i made his website that you were reading <laughs> so this is two yeah. different people <laughs> <laughs> several years yeah. apart and um that could not be ignored and so Iona and I became very close and she became one of my teachers um so she was a very big part of my life but it was it was an indirect road through which I traveled as is often the way with this as we've discussed as well yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the way I ended up becoming part of the Gnostic church was I I was doing psychic readings um which I still do and a man from Paris contacted me and he wanted a reading I gave him a reading and what I saw in the reading I mean I still don't know what I think about past lives and things like that but 
the things I have seen and witnessed in others and in myself, there's no other explanation for them unless we're somehow absorbing memories from Mm -hmm. other beings or, or spirits or something. But anyhow, what I saw with him Um, I described and while I was describing it he was crying and he said that what I had seen was what a number of psychics had seen little pieces of this story but I saw the whole story and it unfolded in front of my eyes like watching a film and what I saw was that he he had been part of a heretical sect in France that was meeting in caves and that he was caught, he was tried, and when he was tried, before they hung him in the square, they castrated him. Oh, my goodness. And these, the reason that he came to me, which I didn't know at the time, was because he kept having this urge to hang himself and castrate himself. And so I didn't know this. And that's why when I t- told him what I had seen, he began to cry. And... I at that time I had no knowledge of the Gnostic world. I had no knowledge of the Cathars or any of these heretical groups. But what I did see is that they were worshiping an icon of a black Madonna, a black mm. goddess, but a very kind of crudely painted one. And there were um, thirteen women in the sect and two men. But the women were kind of like vessel virgins in a way, but they were part of a Christian Gnostic group. Mm-hmm. Except they were not exactly virgins, shall we say. Um, they were doing all kinds of different rites that would have been at odds with what was happening in the greater culture at that time. So I don't know exactly, but what I said to him was that I realised that we had to work together and. I couldn't charge him. We just had to do this work together and I had to somehow help him and that he was going to help me in some way, but I didn't understand why I was doing this. Mm. So we worked together pretty much every day doing different path workings with me in the UK and him in France going to different sacred sites and doing work remotely with each other clairvoyantly. And that became very powerful. And it was through this work with him that he recommended me to some of his friends in Paris for readings and path working with me. And um, one of his friends came for a reading and we then ended up working together and he invited me out to Paris to join one of these groups. So this is how it all began. Um, And as is often the way, once one door opens, you know this, another one opens, another one opens, and then that is how it has been for the past 10 years now. It Amazing. started approximately 10 years ago this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, because <clears throat> so you're looking back to 2013, that's really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about the Cathars and the Gnostic Church for people that don't know? Um, you know they don't don't know about 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 them and their story yeah I mean um, I should probably begin with the Gnostic Church really because it was through the Gnostic Church in a way that I became cognizant more of the Cathars but Mm -hmm. um, 
yeah, the Cathars, well, they, they were a heretical um, Christian Gnostic sect that came out of what is now known as Occitania in the south of France, the Languedoc region, in particular around the Ariège and the Aude. In the late, well, we could say it started as early, I would say, as 1089. Um, the, the first known um, me- uh, mention of them came around about this time. But they rose to prominence as the dominant, um, you could say, religious, um, hmm, how can I describe them, group <laughs> in that region around the middle of the, uh, let's say, 1150. And they started to get into a lot of trouble with the locals because the local Catholics were not keen on the fact that, excuse me, I just need to have some water. It's mm. really hot here. <laughs> um, We've got rain here. I don't know if you can hear the rain on the roof. Hopefully not. It sounds <laughs> quite loud. <laughs> no. So the, the Cathars um, rose to prominence around that time. And the local, what happened basically in the Languedoc at that time, it was a place of great um, learning. It was a place of great um how can I describe it? When I spoke to Miguel, he had a really good way of putting it. It, w- it would have been the new Renaissance. It was the, the place of a spiritual Renaissance. It was a place mm. when people could live um, side by side, practicing their faith, and there was no division. There was no judgment. Um, a Sufi could be friends with a Jew, could be friends with a Kabbalist, could be friends with a practicing Catholic, could be friends with a Cathar. Um, and there was a, it was a great melting pot of different cultures because we had the Arabic influence, we had the Kabbalistic Jewish influence, and we had the Cathars. And so, and the courts of love erupted in the same area at around the same time. And of course, yes. that was influenced by the Sufi Arabic traditions that were mm. coming in with the Moors. And so, this whole region. It was very wealthy, it was very fertile, it had a lot of grapes, it had a lot of grain, it, it was a beautiful place, it had a great climate. And women were really revered in this place. They were really um, not only put on a pedestal, but given equal amounts of power in, mm. in temporal terms. Yeah, and I think that was one of the most important things to come out of the the area. So one of the reasons that the Cathars became so important was because of the prominence of women within their ranks. And the the most remembered of the Cathar women are a woman called Dame Geralda de Lorac and a woman called Escalon de Foix. Mm. Um, and... Geralda de Lorac was really the Chatelaine of a castle in Lorac. And at the time of the Albigensian Crusade, the reason that the Albigensian Crusade began was because the Catholic Church was very concerned that the local nobles in the region, who were very wealthy, who owned a lot of land, who owned castles, vineyards, um, oil presses and everything else were donating their land and their castles and their vineyards no longer to the Catholic Church but to the Cathars. Oh. So they were welcoming the Cathars in 
Amen. they were giving them land they were giving them um churches they were giving them all kinds of things that beforehand they had pledged to the catholic church right and the reason that they did this was because it was out of fear of the hereafter it was out of fear of going to hell yeah and so they they would pledge so much of their wealth like a tithe but you know even giving huge amounts of land because they felt that would guarantee their place in heaven so the cathars came along and they said this is ridiculous you do not need to do this this goes completely against anything that's in the bible read the bible where does it say that you have to do this and so the cathars were very much of the opinion that the perfected human is not bound by material gain, mm-hmm. is not bound by material desires, by greed, by, you know, excess, excess yeah, mm-hmm. by excess mm-hmm. of any kind. And so they were very simple people and they dressed very simply and they lived very simply. And some people have said that they could be um, – compared to the Buddhists they could be compared to like a Christian Buddhist for example but I think it's um a bit more complicated than that though I can see I can see the correlations why people would think that they were vegetarian supposedly and they had they had different rankings as well so you could be a believer in which case you were not expected to change your life in any way Mm -hmm. you just practice the precepts and you know listen to people teaching but you were not expected to become a vegetarian or become a celibate and and then there's the credent I'm trying to think about it in English rather than in French perfect eye the credent and the croyant yeah so there was the believer the hearer the listener and the perfected and so only when a person became what they call perfected were they then expected to become celibate and become a vegetarian and live a very renunciate life. But that was generally only permitted to a person who had already had children and had already been married, done their duty, had their children and um, lived a full life so Mm. that they could then pass that wisdom on to the people that came to them. Yes. So they were they were ready to take that path. They weren't it wasn't something that they were losing. It was something they were gaining, in fact. That's right. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. And so it was not usually passed on to anyone who is particularly young at that, that time. Um, unless they made that decision for themselves. And it was certainly not expected. Mm-hmm. And also, <clears throat> you were not just given that, you had to earn it through initiations. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. very similar to the Buddhist path, in fact, now, you know, the different different Buddhist paths. Yeah. And some of their initiations were quite harsh, like spending a lot of time underground in caves in the dark and things like that. Sensory deprivation and <laughs> Yeah, that's right. And closeness to the divine, sort of divine I mean, were they encouraged to go within or were they encouraged Absolutely. to yeah. No, they were absolutely, yeah. Um, One of the most prevalent myths about the Cathars is that um, when they were murdered, 
So um, the the Albigensian Crusade, I can't remember exactly when it began, but I know one of the, the first major battles that they had was in 1209 when they took Carcassonne. Mm-hmm. And they yes. enlisted some very nasty dogs of war to come and completely destroy Carcassonne and take it. And they did that with Simon de Montfort, mm. who was the leader of the crusade, who had been encouraged to cut the, the head off the dragons, how they put it. They considered the Cathar heresy to be of extreme danger. And so these radical extremist Catholics, including some of whom were, you know, real kind of experienced soldiers who'd been in other battles, they brought that to the Languedoc and they started the Albigensian Crusade. And so it began in 1209 in Carcassonne, really. And then I'm trying to remember whether Bézier was first, but there was a, a massacre at Bézier in which about 20,000 people were killed. And this is a very famous one. And that happened on Mary Magdalene's feast day. And at one point they they put the Cathars into a church that was dedicated to Mary Magdalene in the centre of Bézier and they burned them alive. And they said, as they were locking the doors, they said, now go and be with your whore mother. Because some of the Cathars believed that they were actually descendants of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. And that's another reason why they were despised, because they believed that Mary Magdalene came on the boat, landed in France, gave birth to children, and then carried on that that bloodline. So that was another heresy that the church could not tolerate. And the day when that happened, um, one of the one of the soldiers asked the bishop, "Well, how do we know who's a Catholic and who's a Cathar?" And he said, "Kill them all. God will know His own." And so this was one of the greatest tragedies ever to happen in the history of Europe. It was an absolute travesty what was done to these people who were trying to just live a peaceful life and, and trying to live according to their own beliefs. Yeah. And yeah. so what happened after this is that um, before the fall of Monsegur came the fall of Lorac and Lorac was the castle owned by Dame Geralda, as I said. And unfortunately, what they did, because she was a woman, and like I said, women had power in those days. She was a woman. She was the lady of this castle, and she was managing this castle and the village associated with it. Mm-hmm. Not sure what happened to her husband. We think he maybe was dead or he was away doing something else but she managed the castle with her brother Amaric and during the crusade what they did was they took the dogs of war to her village to her castle and the castle was very securely defended and she put up a very good fight and she was actually fighting physically herself mm-hmm. as well which of course mm-hmm. made them even more angry yeah. and um, the only way that the castle fell was that it was betrayed from the inside so somebody let them in. Somebody let the uh, let the soldiers in, and the soldiers came in and they unfortunately raped Geralda and they did it publicly in front of all of her subjects, and then they threw her down a well, and they stoned her until she died. 
and um, horrendous. Yeah, yeah, and then they hung eighty nine of her knights, and they they raided the village and they took everything and killed whoever they didn't want to take. And the thing is, the reason this story is important is because it directly relates to what happened at Monsegur, because I found out that the the sons of these knights that were hung and some of the relatives of Geralda, Mm -hmm. they decided they were going to get revenge. And so I think it was at least five of them. Um, They they created an ambush for nine Mm -hmm. Catholic priests and they decided they were going to get revenge by slaughtering these priests and so they they had these priests and had them put up in a in a a place belonging to one of their allies and they went in and they slaughtered them as they slept because they wanted revenge Mm -hmm. and unfortunately that incident of killing those priests then led to yet another act of revenge by the Catholic Church and that is when they went for all the rest of the places they could get. So they took Weaver, they took many, many, you know, uh, Rock they took many different places. And the last place that they finally took was Monsegur. And they didn't manage to get that until 1244. So it was right at the end of the crusade, really. So you can imagine the years okay. and years and years of... Yeah. Yeah. Murder. Yeah. And one of the... Um, the people that so Puiva, the castle of Puiva was the the um the castle where the courts of love originated mm-hmm. and were very much propagated there. And so it was a place where there was a, a great sense of liberal art, music, poetry, um, where people were experimenting with the ideas of the courts of love. So the idea of the Chatelaine, the dame, the lady, the troubadours were there. And, you know, it was a, it was a very rich um, cultural place. And they took that castle and destroyed it um, and rebuilt it in a really ugly style. And three of the, the people who lived in the castle, the, the father and the two children, um, became refugees and moved to Monsignor and they they moved there. I think that that castle was taken at around 1210 and they were they were noted as being among the 250 people who were burned at Monsignor. So they would have been refugees at Monsignor for 30 years pretty much by the time mm. that happened to them. Yeah. So the displacement of these people and the way they had to go from place to place to place trying to find safety. And um, all they wanted to do was practice their faith in peace. Just to yeah. be left alone, to live their lives the way that they, you know, that they wanted to, the way that That's made right. sen- most sense to them and and live their life according to their own values and beliefs. That's right. And there are a lot of um, lies spread about the Cathars which I've been trying to do my best to ameliorate because one of the main things that they say is that they were against women, which is completely untrue, that they were against reproduction, which is completely untrue, that they thought that sex was evil because it was the way that the the divine spark got trapped in the material realm and therefore women were to blame and all of these things, you know, 
which again is what the Catholic Church has propagated. And it is not true. I mean, I've read all the Inquisition records and obviously I've been living there for a long time. Yeah. And so spoken to a lot of the descendants of these people um, and become very much a part of that hidden knowledge, you know, that that interior gnosis which has been passed down through the the blood, which has been passed down through the memories of these these people who still survive. Monsignor wasn't even um, inhabited for 200 years after the burnings. They were that terrorised by mm. what happened to them. Yeah. Um, it only became the village that it is now much, much later on. And the, the reason that the Cathars, I think, became important again was because when the last Cathar, Balibast, was burned in 13... 21 before he was burned he was he made a prophecy and he said after 700 years the laurel will turn green again good men and women shall return and he, he said some other things about this prophecy too which I can't go into here but it was a very interesting prophecy and so in the 1950s in England a man called Arthur Gurdon, who you may have heard me speak about before. No, was I didn't think so. Oh, okay, he was a psychiatrist and a doctor from Bath. And um, he was educated at Oxford and he was an atheist. But he was working in a psychiatric hospital. And he started to notice a group of women in the hospital who started to write things when they were in their apparent deluded state. Oh, yes, I think. Mm, and yes. He started, they started drawing what is known as the Cathar Cross or the Occitan Cross. And so he, he was very kind of taken by this and started to ask them questions. And thereby he discovered that they seemed to be reflecting upon ancient memories, which appeared to be their own and which appeared to be part of this Cathar faith and so he from being an atheist and a psychiatrist and you know a real person who was very skeptical he started looking in the uh, archives he had to try travel over to France because at that time no internet and none of this information was in British libraries so he had to go to the archives in Toulouse and start digging to see if any of this information correlated into his shock it actually did and so I, when I became aware of Arthur Gurdon's work um, a lot of these pieces started to fall into place as well because he was of the opinion that the majority of the psychiatric cases that he saw in mm -hmm. his in his work especially among women were cases of undiagnosed psychic ability and in a world where nobody believed them. And so his books are worth lo are looking at, um, especially um, The Cathars and Reincarnation. And he's also written a book, um, trying to remember the name of it, the, the Greatest Heresy. I think it's called The Greatest Heresy, in which he just talks generally about the Cathars. Mm. So it's, it, I think that this started to bubble up because it was the time of the prophecy drawing near, you see. 
So okay. to remember these women started to have these memories. And at the same time, earlier on in the around about 1890 in, in Paris, a man called Deodar Roche, um, he was working in a, a spiritualist circle in Paris with a lady called Lady Caithness, who was a theosophist. And they started to channel what seemed to be disembodied cathars that said to them, and this is where it connects in with the story of the Gnostic Church, by the way, <laughs> it said to them, um, this is the time for the era of Gnosis Restored received the paraclete. And so they were then told the names of these 13 Gnostic bishops. And Jules Donnell was an archivist in Orléans, in Paris, near Paris. And so he was able to access the archives and find that these names were really of genuine cathars that mm-hmm. had existed. Gosh, so he formed, yeah. yeah, he formed the French Gnostic Church, of which I'm a part, in 1890. And one of the main things that he was um, propagating was female ordination, because that is what the cathars did. You didn't have to be a man to be a priest. That's mm-hmm. another reason they were hated. Yeah. But if you go back throughout history and go back into the ancient texts, at the very beginning, it was women who really were creating the church around Christ while he was still alive. Mm-hmm. It was women who were paying his way, who were building his churches, in a sense, um, in their homes. And so, and women in the very beginning were preaching. So this idea that women could never preach because Christ was a man, it wasn't there in the early church. And so the Cathars continued this on, which also indicates that their their um their lineage, their heritage, where they began, is not a later thing, but that it could have come straight continued. out of the Holy Land itself, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that's what I personally believe from the research that I've done. I think they they are like an undiluted stream which was coming out from that time. And do you think that, so you mentioned Montségur, and just going back to that, you ended up living there. You've been living there for some time until fairly yeah. recently, haven't you? That's right, yeah. And do you think that um, it's possible that not everybody was murdered and that there are still some bloodlines that would have um, been Definitely. there? From, yeah. For sure, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that's definitely the belief of a lot of the people that I meet um, and some of the esoteric groups that I have been um, welcomed into yeah. certainly do believe that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And do you think, so just thinking about these kind of waves of um, of, of periods in time when there's this inspiration, you know, you're talking about the very sort of famous French romances and the times that those all blossomed. And then these, it, it reminds me of also the Romantic period and the, you know, at the time of enlightenment. Do you think that there are these times in our human history, our human experience, where the wave comes round again and, you know, kind of comes up to be 
uh, to be to be born again, if you like, to be to 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 carry us through into the next era, if you if you like. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, I do, and I think that's really beautifully said. The way that you express that, yeah. yeah, yeah. We call it the story that never ends, or the story that always returns. Yes, this is it, and and it seems to me at the same time, then you have these kind of forces of darkness that seem to be. Right. You know, yeah, it plays out like that. Yeah. yeah. I was listening to a really, really interesting um, podcast interview over the last few days, and, and I, I'm not sure it's being released yet as we're talking, but it will be by the time this goes out, hopefully. And it's some um, Spirit Box podcast. I don't know if you ever listened to that, mm-hmm. um, but it's it's he's speaking to Michael Leflem, who's written a book about Atlantis. And um, again, you know, tying in with people that are having these psychic abilities, um, whether it be through past life regression work, whether it be through, um, you know, j- just just as, as these women in the um, asylums were having just spur of the moment, psychic awakenings and being able to journal information um i had obviously heard of edgar casey but i hadn't heard before of frederick oliver and so the book talks about um frederick oliver is this young man who uh you know would not have been expected to start writing about well i think it, it came to him in a dream initially he was told you need to start writing this down and the next day he began writing and it was basically a kind of stream of consciousness from uh, a memory of Atlantis and what he was talking about within that I mean this this young I think this was in um it was something like 1836 I think um and the things the kind of things that he was writing about were technologies that weren't even, um, you know, conceivable to human beings until the middle of the 20th century. And yet he's writing about these things that he would not have even known what he was writing about. And he he said a lot of it, I don't even know what this is about, but he wrote it down and he didn't publish it himself, but his mother, after he died, published it 25 years later. And that's why we have it now. So it's not even as if that he was writing something to say look look at this you know it was you know it came about not not because of him um but it 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 the information that he came up with then that edgar casey and a number of other kind of mediums uh, clairvoyance came came up with about atlantis is now kind of being proved in the archaeology in history that's being revealed and more and more knowledge that we're learning about you know uh, geological um as well as kind of archaeological and historical and it's forming this picture and what what is so interesting and so striking is that what was coming through in these uh this information was that we keep doing this we've done it before we are not only on a level within um what we're going through now in our sort of last two thousand years this cycle if you like but we've always done it. I mean, some of the information was going back, you know, 50,000 years and that there were these highly advanced um, societies and that they reached a point where leaders got too 
either either tied up in their own sense of of power or um led by the um you know they 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 were completely overcome with this desire to keep pursuing um the next realm of technology until you know at one point in in one evolution of their existence they kind of disappeared into the ether um and just this idea that you know as as humans we have continued to do this and then had to begin again and and so you know here we are again <laughs> here we are again but i i don't know about you but um when i was uh, younger and starting to look into all of these ideas and learn about the world not through what we're taught in school and not through what society um feels is is normal but but other ways of looking at the history of the world and humankind and our human existence and what that means and um the teacher that we had at the time who I wonder is a bit like one of the people that you've been that had been your mentors over time this was a woman who was fairly elderly at the time um and had been one of a number of people who were situated around the world to bring knowledge to people and she happened to come to jersey every so often in her bid to do this and she would talk about this time being by the time i was older by the time um you know this time we're in now things would start to be happening like the the fall of the systems that were that we're used to and that were built up in say the 20th century for sure and 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 going back into history as well but things like you know education things like um health and um all of these systems you know political systems um mm. that they would all fall in our lifetime and of course in the 90s we couldn't imagine this no. but now we're seeing it um and what she did say was that this time you know we need to ensure that this doesn't happen we need to ensure that the cycle doesn't um you know erupt again i don't know what you think about that and how that kind of ties into your own learnings and experiences and what you've what you've gleaned from your mentors it seems like it is already happening doesn't it when we think about what's happening now with technology yeah and yeah. it's interesting you mentioned that because uh, just yesterday one of my friends who's very psychic um said to me that he felt like at this time we have almost two different species of beings that are trying to work with us but one is pushing us towards more and more and more technology and they're giving us the technology which is what of course all these latest disclosure conversations are indicating and another one which is non-corporeal and which isn't physically solidified in this dimension which is trying to draw us away from the technology and into our own more spiritual way of of being and um he was saying that he believes that the two are kind of not that you know that they're kind of they're kind of battling against each other for the future of humanity in a way um mm, it's the yeah. first time i thought about it like this but given what you've just said it does sound quite reasonable that this could be happening and with all of the latest uh, talk about you know potential um, 
and technology coming from who knows where that we have and that some people are now attributing to aliens as of the last couple of weeks, um, we have to consider where this is going to end with, especially with people like Elon Musk wanting to download people's consciousness into computer chips and, and, and incorporate what's it called again this thing that he's trying to do the brain I can't remember what it's called now um, I haven't I haven't I haven't read about that I, I'm yeah. aware of the the entire <laughs> flow in which in which it's going yeah. having read about that sort of in the 90s actually and seeing it all play out now is is interesting and also fairly terrifying but I guess it makes me think about mm. you know what happened to those what happened to those other um you know, waves of human existence that did, say, for instance, if they did disappear into an ether, then you look at, you start to wonder, right, who, who, if, who are these alien beings? Are there alien beings? Are they us coming back round again? And I know that, you know, that's a, 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 you know, a line of thought that is, that is, um, that aliens can be us in the future. Are aliens us from the past? Exactly. and, I, and I, is it just feeding back into this loop all the time? And, you know, mm-hmm. is there some? Is there really something about this time that means that we can break it? Have we really reached a point in our evolution of consciousness where we are ready to wake up and do something about it? Because, well, or is that something that, that each... Um, you know, wave of of human existence has has felt that maybe this is the time that it stops. I don't know, and you can just kind, of, you know, but it it it's it's filling it's kind of filling my thoughts at the moment because it was it's it's a looks like an excellent piece of research that this man uh, Michael Laflem has undertaken, and his his conversation with Dara Mason of Spirit Box podcast. I highly recommend it, and I'll I'll link after, so I'll send it to you, but. Um, Yes, it's it's very, you know, poignant um, at this time, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, it's worth reflecting on. Um, and is there some way for for us to 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 kind of move away from precipices if we can? But um, I have completely taken you off on a, on a tangent. No, there. this is important. This is very, it, very important what you're saying it because it all does tie in. It ties in very, very deeply with um, what we were speaking about, actually. Yeah, yeah, it does. And the divine, yeah. because it, the divine, you know, this divine spark within ourselves that, you know, wakes us up, that, you know, you had experiences as a child. I had experiences um, similarly, mm-hmm. and many, many, many other people have too. And it's this des- divine spark that can lead us, you know, away from temptation, say, <laughs> yeah. um, and and also towards our somewhere that we can be in in balance again um if that's what you want to call it to to meet with our divine selves as as a global consciousness and some of the experiences that you've had um which would be lovely if you could describe those in a moment I just wonder 
if these are if it ties into these topics that we've just been talking about because they not only awaken us but but guide us in some way I think so um you are of course familiar with the lady and the encounter that I had with the lady and um for your listeners and viewers um this is a, a kind of being who is definitely not human. <laughs> she's not a ghost. She's not a spirit. Um, but she exists and she has some kind of connection with this dimension and with humanity as a whole. And when I had my experience in 2016, it was very shocking because I had never encountered anything like this before. I'd seen many things, I'd had lots of experiences, but not anything so completely otherworldly that it had no other description to use. Plus, it came completely unbidden. It wasn't like I was going out looking for it. It, Well, most of these experiences come unbidden anyway, as we know. Um, I think sometimes when we look for them, they don't happen, as you no doubt know. Um, but I think I was in the right state of receptivity at the time when it happened for me. I will describe that, but what I just want to say before I forget is that um, my experience, my first experience with the lady, and I've had five until now, happened in 2016, April 22nd, at a place called Orceval in France, which is in the Puy de Dome region which is the area which is the most famous for the Black Madonna statues that are oh. throughout. Very, very ancient Black Madonna cult there in the mountains, and they're volcanic mountains too. So it's a very deep and uh, intense and powerful place anyhow. And it, it came about, I had not long been consecrated as a bishop in the French Gnostic Church, and I was making a pilgrimage to pray for 200 people at this sacred site with 10 other women who were dotted around different sites around the world. It was a a private pilgrimage um, organized by a friend of mine called Raylene Abbott. And so we decided we were going to do this and we all congregated at the same time, the same day, you know, with time zones taken into account, of course. And my decision was to go to Puy de Dome because I had, um, prior to all of this, an encounter with the Black Madonna. And so this encounter with the Black Madonna was a very important one too. Um, And so when I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but when I met Richard Stanley later on, who'd also had an encounter with the White Lady, he said to me, first you get the Black Madonna, then you get the, the White Lady. And this is exactly my experience too. So my Black Madonna experience was in 2013 when I was working with this man in Paris that I told you about. That's another story for another time. But um, the White Lady experience happened April 22nd. I was in this church praying for 200 people. But the Black Madonna there had been painted white. And that was one of the reasons that I wanted to go there specifically because I wanted to find out why they had done this. Yeah. And um, she used to be kept under the ground and only brought out a certain number of times a year for festivals. Mm. She was very much a Catholic 
deity that was kept under the ground in the crypt. And people came to make pilgrimages to her from all over France in the 11th century. Mm -hmm. She was very ancient and very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And she was known as our lady breaker of chains because she was um, considered to break people free from addictions, vices, or anybody who was wrongly imprisoned and things like that. So inside the church, there are many um, walls filled with balls and chains where convicts from ancient times actually walked there carrying their ball and chain and donated it, left it there Mm -hmm. as part of their, their penance, as part of their gratitude. And so the whole church is full of these ball and chains hanging on the walls. Um, And so I felt this was a very interesting place, but that's all that I knew about it. And it just seemed like it was the right place to go to. And it was quite difficult to get to as well. So there was that whole ordeal of the pilgrimage as well to undertake. And so anyway, I went there with a friend. And when we got there, um, the church itself is made out of volcanic rock so it has a certain intensity immediately when you go in and it's a shrine church and so it means it's open 24 hours a day so people can come on pilgrimage and they will never find the door closed so for that reason the statue is behind a a perspex case with laser beams all around it so you can't get anywhere near it it's like something out of James Bond and so I was I was extremely angry when I saw this. I felt really like violated on behalf of the lady that this had happened. I'm really angry that the church had somehow captured her and put her in this box. All these strange emotions came up. And um, and so I spent a lot of time in the church and I, I prayed for these 200 people and then went to my hotel room, which was directly opposite the basilica. Um, and... I went to sleep and around 3 a.m. in the morning, I was woken up by an extremely bright light at the end of the bed. And that light then took the shape of a woman and it was hovering three feet in the air. And she had no face, she had no facial features, but she was clearly wearing a veil or a cloak because I could see the edges of the cloak. But she was made completely out of what appeared to be light but the light had some kind of density to it and it was coalescing as I was looking. She was coalescing into the shape of this woman and the intensity of the light was so strong that I could barely open my eyes. I could barely keep my eyes open. It was so strong. And then she had this um, this red light here where her heart would be that was scintillating and moving and she then spoke to me and she said, you called me, so what did you want? What do you want? And she said, people think they come here to see the Black Madonna, but this is what I really look like. You called me, so what do you want? And I couldn't speak. And I remember, even now it's giving me goosebumps. I just remember this terror that came over me, but also awe and shock and I don't even know how to describe it, but there was no way I could formulate a sentence, let alone a thought. (laughs) And so this is where it gets really weird. So she scanned me. She extended this filament of light from the centre of her body and she just scanned up and down the centre of my body for about, well, it must have been an hour at least, probably more. 
And at the time, I couldn't really move, but I wasn't paralyzed or anything. But I was in this sort of entranced state, but while being completely conscious, it was like some kind of communion was happening between the two of us. And I didn't want to break it, even if I could. And then at the end of this, she said, what you want is the truth and the truth you shall have. And then this is where it gets even more strange. She said, if you want to know the truth about your boyfriend, look on his phone. And I suddenly like jumped up and said, no. And then she, she started to dissipate. And so she, she kind of, the window, she was, she was in front of the window at this point. She'd moved from the end of the bed around to the window while she was when she finished the scanning and then she dissipated through the window backwards out towards the basilica which is behind the window and um I was in complete shock and the next day my boyfriend came to meet me he drove up to meet me we had lunch and uh of course I had to have the awkward conversation to ask why such a thing would happen and uh he confessed that he had been in touch with his ex-wife and things like that you know um, things that he'd said he was never going to do. So um, that was the awkward part of it. But it was, it that was the really strange thing about it, that she would be so interested in something like that, <laughs> something so banal. But then this is where it gets even stranger. So my then boyfriend and I, before we left, we went to this little shop opposite the Basilica, so right next door to my hotel. and. We were speaking to the man who owned the shop and he lived in the apartment upstairs and he was quite a young man in his, I would say, mid-30s. And we asked him, do you know of anything that's ever happened, you know, in relation to this place, anything strange, if you heard any strange stories, because he'd been working there for years and he lived there. And we never said anything about my experience And he said, yes, me. And then he went on to say that a year before, almost to the day, his wife and three children had left and he was suicidal and he decided he was going to take his life. And he went into the basilica, even though he was an atheist, he went into the basilica and he prayed in front of the statue like I did. And he felt really angry in there, like I did, about the fact that the statue was behind this Perspex case. And he then went home and he determined he was going to do it the next day. And in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., same time as me, he had this bright light wake him up. He sprang out of bed thinking something was happening outside, that maybe, you know, there was something happening at the Basilica, but nothing the, the light was still there at the end of the bed. So he sprang back into bed, completely terrified, and watched as it took the form of a woman. So the same kind of thing. Yeah. And she said to him, do not do what you are considering to do. If, and then she explained to him all the reasons why his wife had left and that if he was to take his life, the consequences it was going to have on his family, his children. And he said that for him, his whole life changed in that moment because he said he felt he was never going to feel that way again. Um, And he said he recognised through that encounter that he'd closed down his heart because he was trying to be the man 
And in so doing, he closed down his ability to connect with his wife at that time. And that's why she left. And they never got back together. It's not like it's a happy ending from a fairy tale. But he said he has never felt sad since that day, again, because he believes that the lady is with him. Gosh, so it's a healing, like his heart had healed. She healed his heart. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, that that is such a powerful experience that you that you had was had you I mean, I want to ask before I forget as well, did you ever speak to the church about the Perspex um container? No. no. I never did, no, but no. it was it was a curious thing. It was this feeling she'd been captured, that she'd been um that she didn't mm. belong there in a way, that she didn't belong behind that perspex, that she was being used in a strange way. Yeah. It was a strange thing. I don't really know. But he felt the same, which is odd as well. That we both yeah. felt like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Had you ever had um, any experiences before that that were that were similar, that was just completely out of the blue? Well, I was speaking recently with a lady called Dr. Diana Pasulka, and um, she and I have become friends um, because she was very interested in the work that I was doing on Colour Out of Space, the film that came out a few years ago. And she is a religious historian and she studies comparative religion and she has written a book quite recently called American Cosmic, which... Oh, yes, is, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. yeah. And she, um, she and I made contact because I was made aware of the existence of a man called Christopher Bledsoe, who is an American who has also seen the lady. And he, before he had his experiences with the lady, he was having many orb experiences. Yeah. Some of which were quite terrifying, you know, including very large orbs that were chasing him and his children on his property and things like that. He got investigated by MUFON and many different government agencies in America and was considered to be telling the absolute truth. Mm-hmm. And um, he he became very depressed about the things that were happening to him because he was in the Bible belt and he was considered by his neighbors to be mad or even worse, like possessed by the devil or something. Mm-hmm. And the kind of scientific community were um, very kind of studying him in a quite invasive way. And the UFO community were kind of against him because he was saying, well, these are not aliens. I don't know what they are, but they're not aliens. Right. Um, and so he was in this kind of no man's land of, what on earth am I experiencing here? And he, the only way he can describe it now is that he had an encounter with another worldly being, like an angel, but not an angel as such, not an angel as we would know an angel to be. Mm. And the reason that I, I bring those up, those two people up, is because Diana has recognized throughout history that we've got incidents, you know, of these kind of manifestations throughout the Bible, throughout the Jewish macabre literature and things like that and so she helped Chris to place his experiences in a more religious context in a more spiritual context Mm. and I made contact with both of them about my experiences with the lady because I read Chris's transcript of his experience 
and it was almost identical to mine. 3 a.m., hovering three feet above the ground, a woman coalesced of light and um, bearing messages and asking questions and very interested in us personally. And that's the strangest thing. Like, why would these beings be so concerned about certain people and their personal problems? (laughs) In Chris's case, he had very bad um, colitis. He was extremely ill. I think it was colitis or Crohn's disease, one of those two. Mm-hmm. And he, she was he, he was healed by his encounter with the lady. Yeah. yeah, and and I mean, you know, BVM, what they call BVM, Blessed Virgin Mary yes. <laughs> encounters, um, which are fairly frequent, actually, aren't they? I mean, they're you know they're not they're not as rare as people might think, I, I suppose, but often healing does take place, doesn't it? Sometimes it's healing of a community even. Um, exactly. Yeah. And I personally think, I didn't know, because when this happened to me, I had no context for it. And I was traumatized, I can't lie, because what do you do in it, with an experience like that? It's so if it had just been me on my own, then I could have even written it off like I have done mm. so many of my experiences. You know, you know you've got you know you've had them, but there's a little part of the mind that can think, oh well, maybe I really did dream that, or maybe it really was my imagination. But when you have witnesses when there are other people within 24 hours saying, yes, the same thing happened to me and my then boyfriend was there as a witness. Mm. It, it's, it's impossible yeah. to say this didn't happen. It's impossible to file that away as maybe, maybe this didn't really happen, you know, which is how I've dealt with a lot of my experiences over the course of my life. Um, I can't do that anymore. And um it got even even worse in a way because after this, I had um, my encounter with Richard and Richard and I met because I was working for a web TV channel in Paris at the time called Bagless TV. And my job was uh, as a researcher and part of my job was to find um, interview subjects for our channel. And he wanted, my boss wanted um, people that spoke English because he wanted to branch out to the US and UK market. So I had a list of 10 people that I needed to contact and Richard was one of those names on the list. So I wrote him an email just like I did with all the other 10 and he wrote back and he said, oh, let me add you to my private Facebook group, Tara Umbra, and then you can see a bit more about what I do. And so Richard was on that list because he lived in Montsegur and he was an expert in the Cathars. And so that's what they wanted him to talk about. I didn't know that he had a history as a filmmaker that, you know, years before he'd made several Hollywood films or documentaries. I didn't know any of that. I just knew, OK, he knows about the Cathars. We need to get him on the show. And so when I went onto Richard's Terra Umbra Facebook group, the first thing that I saw was him talking about his encounter with the white lady and how that correlated to the Blessed Virgin apparitions. And that was when I just, I had goosebumps and, you know, my blood ran cold thinking, oh my goodness, there is a, there is a precedent for this. Yeah. This may well be a Blessed Virgin apparition. I mean, that is what the man in the shop thought it was because mm-hmm. he was a lapsed Catholic who'd become an atheist. But right. for me, yeah. Because she had no facial features and because she spoke in a very high-pitched 
ethereal otherworldly voice and you know she she didn't take that physical shape to me um she was just that shape of a woman in a cloak mm-hmm. without a face I didn't know who or what she could have been and I didn't correlate in my mind at all with these apparitions because I would probably think well why on earth would that happen to me you know <laughs> Um, and so when I read Richard's post, I was in shock and I contacted him immediately and said, okay, we need to talk because this happened to me. And it's a little bit like um, the way I describe all of these events is it's a little bit like when you've done active service in the military, how I imagine it is for, for people that you've had these experiences that no one outside can possibly understand. And then you have to go back into ordinary life and try to adapt like everything is normal, but you'll never be the same again. Mm -hmm. And that's how I felt after that experience. And so when I met Richard, I felt like, oh, my goodness, I've got a comrade in this. You know, I've got someone who really understands. And he explained about his experience 10 years earlier. And then he told me that in the Pyrenees in Montsegur, that there was a long tradition of these appearances these apparitions that predate mary even that go back even to neolithic times and which you know have been a part of their culture so that was how i ended up in monster really because i met richard and we started being in a relationship mm. yeah and then i discovered you know that it happened to him and he had a witness as well. And then I started to meet more people who'd had these encounters. And the thing I just want to mention in relation to what you say about these times that we live in, and there is a man you've probably heard of, Ingo Swan, maybe. Mm-hmm. He's um, the CIA, CIA psychic who is part of the Stargate program. Um, he's written a book called The Apparitions of Mary. And... In that book, he has correlated that these apparitions tend to happen in clusters just before we are about to enter into a very traumatic time for humanity. So when you think about what happened to me and to Richard and to others at that time period, it was just before COVID came. I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is it. Sorry. Yeah, this is it. This is it. Um, that they do, they do. It does happen like that. It can happen like that. Yeah. Yeah, and um, like the apparitions at Fatima, she didn't, she didn't give me any prophecies or anything like that. But she did tell me certain things. But with Chris Bledsoe, she has given him prophecies, not all of which he has been able to disclose yet. Okay. Yeah. Makes me think also of um, you know the Mothman, um, how that played out as well. You know, appearing to all of that community just before the collapse of um, the Silver Bridge too, and and uh, yeah, it does it does happen like that. That there's some kind of connection with the beyond. There's some kind of connection with the other world. Um, is it something? Well, we just don't know. We just don't know what it is, do we? Do you think that? What What do you think? Do you, Do you think it that these beings, like particularly these um these ladies, how would you describe 
what they are and where you think that they might come from? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think they're interdimensional, definitely. They seem to coalesce using light. They seem to appear during the full moon very commonly. My my experiences have mostly been around the time of the full moon, and so were Richard's too. Um, they seem to utilise the energy of the place, so they seem to appear only in certain locations, generally speaking. Um, very, you could say, isolated locations. They seem to be correlated with water. Yes. And also with granite, particular mm. types of stone, where there are high piezoelectric um, activities happening. Um, sometimes they seem to be correlated where there are um, tectonic plates moving as well, so where there are hot springs and things like that volcanic places like where I was um so I believe that they are somehow connected to humanity and they're connected to each other so the experiences that I've had each manifestation has been slightly different um though she's always never had a face I've never seen her face I saw her face almost once at a distance in Monsegur and it was so overwhelming that I thought if I really see her face, I will not survive. I will yeah. not make it, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that they can only manifest here for short periods of time and that we can, however, make it possible for them to manifest here more securely um, by our own actions and by our own participation. Um, the way I see it is that they're like, um, I believe that there is there is a realm which they come from, but where that realm is, whether it's in in space or under the earth or in some kind of extra dimension, which we just don't know of, which you, you mentioned the world, the word, the other world. That's how Richard describes it. So there are realms where in this earth, we have those gates which can be opened through which she can come. Mm. And I think part of it is our willingness as well. I think she can only appear really to certain types of people. And it's not always the people that you would think. It's often those that are very humble or very broken or very ill or just very open like I was and I'd been praying for all of those people. Yeah. Um, it's, she certainly doesn't seem to appear to film stars or sports stars or rock stars you know um like with like with the children um with the apparition at lord you know they seem to usually mm. come to people that are children or humble in some way innocent <laughs> innocent mm. yeah that's right um and i feel they're often connected to certain locations as I say so I believe there's one in Glastonbury as I think I may have said to you mm. I encountered one in Glastonbury um at the White Spring yes and can you tell us about that yeah that was a complete surprise because um when I went to Glastonbury for the first time I had no expectations in fact my expectations were very um non non um very quite judgmental because I thought it was going to be full of you know people on a fake spiritual trip somehow 
Um, and that was not what I experienced at all. And it wasn't some kind of Disneyland um, for people that were playing, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. So I'd been told it was going to be like. Mm-hmm. Um, when I went okay. into the White, yeah, when I went into the White Spring for the first time, I did not want to go in. Um, my friend Kate dragged me in there because I just didn't really feel like going in at that moment. But she said, no, you've got to come in. Come on, let's go in now. It was um, quite busy inside there. And I don't know for your for your listeners, your viewers, the White Spring is um, an old stone chapel, which has three interconnected circular bathing pools at the back, which are perpetually refilled with spring water that people can go into and bathe in at any time of the day when it's open. Um, and the spring is kept completely free of electricity um, no money changes hands to go in or to participate in anything there. And it's taken over by custodians who take care of the place. And it's only ever lit by candlelight. So it's a very mystical place. And so I went into this, this chapel, this place, and I felt like I went back in time. Like I literally could have been anywhere, anytime. It felt so ancient the the frankincense the candlelight the water the sounds of the water and the naked people in the pools praying there were quite a few of them all naked but completely full of reverence and love and that's what I felt when I walked in there and then I felt her she was coming out of the left-hand wall where the Black Madonna statue is and uh, I just fell to my knees and I was crying and my friend Kate was with me and because she was holding my hand, she felt it too. Mm-hmm. And so she also fell to her knees crying. And um, to me, it was such a surprise because I just didn't think I would ever encounter her in this country. All of my encounters had been in Occitania and in Puy de Dome in France. So to know that she was there and present and that she made her presence known it was truly life-changing because up until that point, I could never leave France. I had to stay there because she was there. And that was part of my life's work. And uh, when I discovered she was in in the White Spring, (laughs) that was when I made the decision that I would come back to England for a while and spend some time in Glastonbury. So an invitation, an invitation to come back to <laughs> yeah. to Britain. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for anyone that wants to go, I would highly recommend that place. It, I think it's probably, for me, the most spiritually powerful place in Glastonbury, more so than the Tor or Chalicewell or the Abbey. But then that's because, you know, I'm very attuned to her and to her, her energy, whatever she is. Mm. Yeah, I've been to Chatterswell and I've been obviously I've been up the tour a number of times too, but I haven't visited there yet, so I really must. I really Maybe must. Yeah, yeah, we should. That would be lovely. I've been down the road in Bristol, of course. It's enjoy it. Yeah, I do yeah. think you enjoy the experience. Um as for the way I see what she is, what I feel is that um it's like they have a root system. That's the only way I can describe it um, in the same way that trees have roots and they pop up in different locations, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I believe somehow that these beings are 
are all connected at the root. Now, whether that root is under our, our earth or it's, I don't know, maybe it's both, but certainly they seem to pop up, but they share the same root, if that makes sense. Mm. And their manifestations may differ, but ultimately they are from the same root. Yes. They have the same kind of, um, they feel the same. They feel, would you say that they have different, not personalities, but different, a different sense to them, but ultimately from the same place? Or would you feel like they carry this exactly the same resonance as each other? That's a really, really good question. I think they carry the same resonance, but they're overlaid with the flavor of whatever they manifest. Yeah, yeah. And also according to who they manifest to. Mm, okay, yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. Because I'm thinking about, um, you know, often in, there's lots of white lady um, visitations and appearances in folklore, and they're often tied to wells. Um or water in some way, wells or streams or, you know, even riverbanks. And um, it is interesting, isn't it? I don't know why, you know, why why that would be. I mean, you know, we just don't know the answers to these questions. And I don't know if it's even the same sorts of beings as what you have described. But I think it might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it is very interesting. I'd like to you know, speak to more people that have had these experiences too. And you you also mentioned that you'd had some fairy experiences and <laughs> did they feel the same? How was that? They were different. But just to finish with the white lady, I wanted to say that um, it, it, I think she also chooses how she takes form in a sense, um, according to who's watching. Because when Richard saw her, she looked very much more like someone out of a Dungeons and Dragons fantasy kind of story, you know, very kind of ferocious with a sword and things like that. Um, So I think that that's another thing that they can do. And regarding wells and springs, I was thinking about this yesterday. They are liminal places and they are a place where there is a gap and that gap is where the water comes through. So when we think about what that symbolizes, it's it's a place from under the earth where the water is pouring through from underneath the earth. And so it's a liminal place. It's a portal. It's a natural portal. Plus, I think they utilize the water vapor. Um, I think they utilize that as part of their manifestation because there was also a spring inside the church where I had my first encounter. I was going to, yeah, I was wondering whether there was some kind of link with water there. So mm. it was literally in the church. That's so interesting, mm. isn't right it? Right to so the centre. The spring was at the back and it ran yeah. right to the centre of the church up to the altar and then it filled the font at the back. Oh, well, wow. How amazing. Yeah. Amazing to have that. Imagine, you know, being, if, they, if people were uh, christened in there, what mm. an incredibly sacred place to be you know, to be christened, if you are going to be christened. Amazing. Yeah, I was just thinking about um, Richard's um, experience with the sword and and if that was in Montségur, whether whether the kind of genius loci of that place, of Montségur, um, given what took place there, 
Exactly. Maybe that's why they had the sword. Yeah, as a kind of a, a white, yeah, defending. Yeah, location. Mm. That's given me goosebumps. Yeah, I, I think that's true. And you know, when the Cathars were killed, um, they they could have given in and they could have um, converted to Catholicism, but they refused. They said they'd rather die than do that. But what's curious is just before they were killed, a number of of the soldiers that were up there also converted to Catholicism, uh, to Catharism. And it happened just before um, March. The March 16th was when they all died, but they all converted about a week beforehand. And Richard and I always wondered why this was, and we both believed that it was because she appeared there. And we've heard that they were aware, very aware of this, this being, this presence who had shown herself to them on the mountain. And Monsecure, the reason Monsecure didn't fall and why it never would have fallen if it hadn't been betrayed also from within, just how it did fall, yeah. was because of the seven springs at the top of that mountain. So they they just had what what, what they needed there. There, there was yeah. no need for them to come. Yeah. Do, is it document sorry? Yeah. I was just fell because it had no water. Fundamentally, that's how it fell in the end. Yeah, yeah. I have been to Carcassonne. It's an incredible place. Yeah. Um, there's a very strange vibe there, though, isn't there? It's a oh, yeah. really, really odd vibe there, but it is an amazing place. Um, is it documented who or what or in you know in what way? Uh, they were portrayed at um, bet- betrayed, not portrayed um, at Monsecure. Do they know how? Not exactly. No. no, only that somebody let them in. Same as what happened in Lorac. So you have that side of it, but then you also have the story of the soldiers converting, and that makes me think of you know whether they saw this. Um, the lady or or not yeah when you know and feel the truth there's no denying it is there that's right that's right and what the cathars developed was some kind of technology and i say technology not in the technological sense but some kind of method methodology of being able to withstand walking into the flames and that's how they were able to go in willingly that's what has been said has been passed down that they went into the flames singing and they were not afraid and that doesn't mean that what happened to them wasn't a terrible tragedy but they had some kind of faith that was so incredibly powerful that it could even withstand the sacrifice of their lives and they knew they were coming back that's the other thing the cathars believed in the transmigration of souls, they believed fully in reincarnation like the Buddhists. And so they didn't believe that that was the end. And that's what Balibast said. And so the prophecy that he made that was coming back around in 2021, um, that was the 700 years that were up. And the interesting thing about the laurel is that the laurel was the symbol of the Cathars, but Around the time, uh, so in 2020, as well as having um, COVID come, 
few months ago, we also had the box tree moths, which ravaged most of the south of France. We had these moths come over from China, which ravaged the landscape. And Monsegur was almost a husk of, of dead trees. But in 2021, the green south coming back exactly as Balibas had predicted. My goodness. And yeah, this is quite... the time when more and more people are becoming drawn to the Cathars. Uh, when I do my talks, the amount of people that contact me and say, I've had memories, but I know yeah. this story and this happened to me. And I remember this, I remember burning. I've got at least two friends that remember, including Richard, that remember trying to get children, babies and children um, down the back of the mountain, that there was a secret exit point that they were trying to get children and artifacts down from the mountain before the place was taken. Nice. Um, so there are a number of people that have contacted me and said, you know, they remember something. Yeah. Yeah, I must say, when I heard you talk about this um, with Miguel, yeah, it just it really, um, really, really spoke to me. Um, and I also have heard, so I, I follow this astrologer on YouTube, uh, Pam Gregory. I don't know if you're familiar with Pam Gregory's I've work. I've heard of her, yeah, I have heard of her. Um, and she has had, in fact, she... I think she lived there at one point. She she had a, she had a home there. Anyway, she's talked about it with friends of hers who also remember being there as well. So it was funny because after I heard you speak, and it's something that I have been interested in, being from Jersey, and and um, I, I kind of had some connection with that area, but not Montague specifically. Mm. Um, have always been interested in the Cathars, but I had never really um, given myself the space to 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 look at it properly until until I heard you speak about it. And uh, mm -hmm. I think maybe it was just that this time, as in because it was twenty twenty one when I first sort of started looking into it, was was the right time to to look into it, and uh, not before. Wow. Um, yeah, so. You mentioned with uh, with the fairy experience, was that in Montague as well or was that somewhere else? No. Um, so my, my experiences with the White Lady, what happened in in Orseval in Puy-de-Dôme and the rest happened in Montague. And then um, I've had one in England in Glastonbury and another one in England in a Viking settlement, strangely enough. Um, and Richard and I were renting a place in Renlaban, which is where Henry Lincoln lived, which is not far from Montsegur. It's very close to Renle Chateau. Mm. And uh, we created a stone circle in the garden. And I was sitting out. Richard was editing the film. Um, he was editing Colour Out of Space in LA at the time. I was sitting out in the garden one afternoon with the cat just sitting in the stone circle on one of the flat stones. And we had a river at the end of the garden as well. So obviously we have that river connection again, the water connection again. And it was very strange because uh, this was in the middle of the day, you know, but I suppose we should be used to this by now, shouldn't we? Really? <laughs> should be used to it by now, but still. 
um, to my left appeared three beings, which were about four feet tall, and they were clearly women. I don't know how I knew they were women because they were completely bald, and their ears kind of pointed up like this, and they had ridges on the side of their heads. Mm-hmm. And where their eyebrows were, they had ridges that kind of came up. And their faces were like, they had like human skin, but it was kind of shiny, kind of shiny. Um, and two eyes that, that were very normal eyes, like were quite big, tiny little nostrils and a very sort of small mouth. And they were wearing these dark purple gowns that were going down to the floor, very kind of A-line, with a gigantic golden circle in the centre, but like a ring, not painted in, just like the outline of a circle. Mm-hmm. And uh, they just appeared there, and they, they were looking at me, and they were talking amongst themselves, and they were judging me. That was what was so funny about it. And they were kind of going, the kind of the voice was like, like that yeah I did not know what to think but I just I was quite scared actually I have to admit um and they seemed to be very old you know they seemed to be old ladies of their species okay. yeah um, you know seemed to be very old and they were discussing me in front of my face um and they were clearly kind of trying to decide whether or not I was friend or foe or whether or not you know I was good or bad, I think. Um, But I didn't do anything. I just sat and observed them. And then they kind of just looked at me sideways and scurried away into the undergrowth. And then within moments, another one appeared sitting on one of the standing stones. And this was a male of the same type. But he had extremely extremely long legs like long gangly legs and he was wearing a red suit like this color red mm-hmm. and it was all patchwork it was like I don't know why I saw all of these details but it was all patchwork this suit mm-hmm. and he had a suit and then the, the trousers to match and extremely pointy black shoes and he had one of his legs crossed over his knee you know in that, that way of yeah. sitting mm. And he was just staring at me and then he just turned around and was staring at the river. And I actually got quite disturbed at that point and I decided to go inside. (laughs) And then the same night I was in bed and I saw something next to the side of the bed, which is about three feet tall. This section is available for all members of the Curious Crew who support me on Patreon. Join us there for this and more bonus content patreon.com forward slash the modern fairy sightings podcast yeah oh thank you so much amanda it's been absolutely fascinating and i feel like there's more threads that we can talk about because you know you've had so many more um life experiences experiences with what you're continuing to do as well and your travels and talking perhaps another time about the film as well because we didn't get to to talk about the film but that's a you know it's a fantastic endeavor as well that you and Richard um achieved it's an amazing film and as you say so much interesting and important information in that film 
So I'd like to talk to you again because you you were talking about how uh, that then sort of filtered into your life. So perhaps perhaps we'll talk yeah. about that another time. And um, yeah, just thanks so much for coming on. There's lots in my head now. I'm sure I'm going to be thinking of more things to ask you. And if people want to get in touch with you, which I'm sure they will want to do, because um, you offer... You, you mentioned that you offer kind of one-to-one consultations as well, don't you? And I do. Yeah. yeah. Where can people find you? I have a website, which is just my name. It's um, www.amandamariamneradcliffe.com. Yeah, it's a bit of a mouthful, but that's my uh, my website. It's just my name, so it's easy for people to find. Brilliant. Thank you. And what are you doing at the moment? Are you planning more trips to various places? Are you involved Um, in projects? Yeah, I'm working on a book, which I have been for a while, about my experiences over the last 10 years and also about the film, about the experiences we had on the film Um, and some other creative projects, which I can't speak about just yet because they're still in the pipeline. Um, and I'm still teaching. So I, I run a mystery school as well, which is another thing that people can do with me. Um, and I feel like now the time is coming to start bringing people out into the land more. So that will be happening in Glastonbury and in Montsegur and Renlaban as well. Oh, fantastic. Please keep me posted about that. If you're going to do trips out there, then... That that sounds really exciting to me. So, mm-hmm. and I'm sure lots of other people that are, you know, watching and following your work as well. So, thanks very much. And yes, we'll speak again. And I'm sure I'll see you in Glastonbury at some point soon too. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks. <laughs>